Well, in this series called Signs, we've been looking at the seven miracles that John recorded when he wrote about the life of Jesus. He boiled it all down to seven miracles. And he said, if you know nothing other than these seven, like these are the seven that I think you need to know so that you can believe that Jesus wasn't just some great person, but this actually is the son of God. And today, as we wrap up this series, we only had a chance to work through four of them so far, and today will be the fifth. I thought it would only be fitting for us to just go real quickly through the seven, what they were and what they teach us about Jesus. The first miracle was when he turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And what he taught people was that his miracles were not just for convenience. His miracles were to send a message about who he was and what he came to do. The second miracle we saw was how he healed a royal official's son. The royal official came to him from a great distance and said, would you please come heal my son? And Jesus said, no, I will not go with you, but you go, he will be fine. And what we learned is that sometimes when God wants to work in your life, it requires some faith from you, some faith to do as he invites you to do. But then in the third miracle, we saw how he healed a man who was by the pool in Jerusalem, the pool called Bethesda. And this man had no idea who Jesus was. And so what we learned from this third miracle is that God can work miracles regardless of your faith. Your faith doesn't limit what God can do. And then the fourth miracle we saw last week was how Jesus fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, perhaps more, But in this miracle, he demonstrated that when Jesus tells you to do something, he will use what you have and make it enough. The two two miracles we didn't have a chance to look at were how the fifth one was how he walked on water. He demonstrates that he has power even over nature. And then the sixth one, how he healed a man born blind. And in this miracle, he settles the question, our hardships don't come because of a specific sin that we're guilty of, but rather our struggles, our suffering can really tell a story of God's glory and how he can work in our lives. And then today, as we wrap up the series, we're gonna see the seventh miracle, which has to do with Lazarus. And here's what I love about this seventh miracle is that John takes all the previous six miracles And they all have something to do in the seventh one. Like the seventh one pulls out the most pertinent parts from these first six, and it shows them in an entirely different way. But I'm going to set it up like this because this is what John invites the reader to do. As he tells the story of this miracle with Lazarus, it builds on these first six. Because when you look at the first six, you come to the conclusion that God can do whatever he wants to do. When it comes to whatever you're struggling with, whatever your sin is, whatever your situation is, or whatever circumstances you've been given in life, God has the power to change it. So why doesn't he? This is going to be the tension that John invites the reader to think about in this seventh and final miracle that he records from Jesus Life. And the question is basically this What do you do when God disappoints you by not doing what He is able to do? And maybe for some of you, you have a recent season in your life where you asked God for something that He didn't do and you had expectations of Him that He just didn't follow through with. And maybe you had different words for it, but at the end of the day, you were disappointed by what God didn't do or by what He did. 
So what do you do with that? Well, as we look at this seventh and final miracle, Jesus and John, John invites us as the readers to think about this and find a good answer. So I apologize ahead of time because for this sermon, like there's 10 different sermons we could pull from this and I didn't want to do that to you guys. So we're going to kind of weave around and find some different truths in John chapter 11, but ultimately this is where we're going to land. When God doesn't do the expected, when maybe even you find yourself disappointed. So I'm going to let John set up the miracle. He's going to set up the background, and we're just going to follow him along for the ride. So John chapter 11, verse 1, starts like this. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he starts off very basic. And we're going to see it in a little bit, the background. But Lazarus had two sisters, at least. Their names were Mary and Martha. And those names should be familiar because uh, weeks or months before this, Jesus had been at their house before. In fact, it seems Jesus and his disciples were frequent guests of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem. And apparently, when they heard that Jesus had no place to lay his head, they said, Jesus, we have plenty of room. It seems that they were wealthy. It seems they had a pretty nice place because they would frequently have 13 guys over for a meal. And in fact, what we just read about in this service in John chapter 12 is how they had a whole big party for Jesus and all those who were with him. So Lazarus was sick. And Lazarus was someone whom Jesus loved. It wasn't just an acquaintance. This was someone whom Jesus had spent a lot of time with. And so we jump to verse 3 where it says, The sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent word to Jesus, Lord, Lord, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. And maybe they're playing out the miracles that they have already seen or heard of. How there was a royal official who came to Jesus with a very similar problem. He sent word, my son is sick, please come help him. And Jesus gave the word and his son was fine. I'm sure they were expecting something similar. Jesus, this isn't just some random kid in Capernaum that's, that's sick. This is your friend. This is the one whom you love. It's Lazarus. He's sick. Not just a go to Walgreens and get some ibuprofen sick. This is a sickness that if you don't intervene with, he won't make it through. So here's how Jesus responded. When Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness he has will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. This specific sickness he has, Jesus playing the doctor here, he won't die from it. It's not terminal. But rather, the purpose of this is not an obituary. The purpose of this is the glory of God. And so, get this. (laughs) Jesus receives word. He could have said anything, and he could have just spoken at the moment, healed Lazarus, and people would have been, wow, he healed him. This is amazing. And people would have honored him and glorified him. But here's how it continues. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This wasn't just, thanks for supporting my ministry, but this was, you're part of my family. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, what would, what would he do? What, what should he do? Cancel all of his speaking arrangements for the next two weeks and go tend to his friend. He should drop whatever he's doing and go quickly. He should give word, Lazarus, I heal you. And then 
his friend as well, but that's not what he does. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, this is so unexpected. He stayed where he was for two more days. And then after two days, he said to his disciples, okay, I guess let's go back. You didn't even say, let's go see Lazarus. Let's, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back near Jerusalem. Now, how do you think Mary and Martha were feeling? They had seen him do greater things. They asked him for a little thing. And yet, he was absent. He was silent. I think this is probably how they were feeling. They were confused, disappointed, angry, upset. Maybe one or more of those words have described how you've been feeling about what God did or didn't do in your past. You called out to him for something that was reasonable, but the answer was his absence, his silence. And how do you navigate that? How do you make sense of a loving God who doesn't do loving things in the moment? What do you do when you're disappointed by God? So then Jesus turns to his disciples after two days of not doing anything, and he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And the the disciples, they don't get it. They say, oh, wait, if he's sleeping, that's good as we would probably say the same thing. When you're sick, sleep is a good thing. It helps you get better. And Jesus said, no, I'm not talking about sleep, sleep. I'm talking about the sleep. He goes on to tell them plainly, Lazarus, guys, Lazarus is dead. We've been hanging out here for two full days doing good things. (laughs) But during that time, Lazarus is dead. And then he goes on. He says, this is no, no accident. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there to change things. And here's why. This is what, so, okay, what's more important than going back to see your friend? And what's more important than healing someone you love? This to Jesus was more important. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, so that you may trust It's one thing to trust God to help you get better. It's another thing to trust God with your life and your soul. Jesus had already demonstrated in several ways. They could trust Jesus with their their life, their, their health. But Jesus was stretching them to say, I invite you to trust me with even more. So here's where often we get into a little bit of a you know, spiritual wrestling match where we pray for God and we ask him to do these reasonable things. But what if we are asking too little? What if he's wanting to develop in us a greater trust, a greater faith for even our very souls? So here's where I land. One thing we learned from this miracle is that big issues present an opportunity for big trust. Big issues. And you've probably... um, experienced this with relationships in your life where maybe you worked with someone and you kind of, you know, occasionally helped the other person. Like they got your papers off the copy machine. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. But maybe there was a day when things were really bad, not just with work, but at home. And they came and they were there and they helped. Your relationship grew. Your trust was bigger because a big issue leads to big 
trust. Jesus said to them, I'm so glad I wasn't there for your sake because you could have had a little belief in me that I can help you get better from your colds and your viruses, but I wanna show you how I came to make you better with your soul, your life, and take away your sin. Big issues present an opportunity for big trust. So we fast forward to verse 17, and on his arrival, when Jesus finally got to Bethany, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And that number four is significant because kind of this idea they had, I wouldn't call it superstition, but it was kind of just this belief they had um, in general back then was that when a person died, their soul would kind of hover around the body for three days. But after that, the soul would go to wherever souls go. So this was kind of just a common idea. So the implication was that by the fourth day then, everyone would basically realize he's gone, gone. He's not just dead, he's gone. And by the time Jesus got there, he had already been in the tomb for four days. And so when Jesus gets there, he meets Mary. She comes to him and says, Lord, if, if you had been here, he'd still be alive. She expressed frustration. She expressed disappointment all the while still expressing trust. Then he talked to the other sister. He talked to, to Mary, to, Mar um, to Martha. And the same thing with her. Lord, if you had been here four days, four days ago, things would be different. So he's talking to Mary. She's breaking down crying. And Jesus sur surveys the area. Several Jews had also come. They were basically sur surrounding this family with comfort during this time. And as Jesus surveyed the area, here's what happened. When he saw Mary weeping, just uncontrollable anguish, and he also saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Just, it's one thing to see one person weeping, but it's another thing to see a group of people sharing in that emotion of grief and loss. Jesus also was deeply moved in spirit. And he was troubled. Now, here's my question for you. What does it take to get God troubled at something? Here's the amazing thing. When, when you confess your sins to God, he's not surprised. It's not like you can sin in a way that someone else hasn't already done the same thing or 10 worse things. When you confess your sin to God, there's nothing he's surprised by. But what does move him is our grief. In this moment, Jesus could have said, oh yeah, you're crying. Guess what? I know it's going to happen. We'll be good. But instead, Jesus validates the loss. He asks this question. He says, where have you laid him? Where did he go? Well, come and see. So as they're traveling out, they're walking. Out, it would be outside of the village because you couldn't bury people inside. So they were traveling towards the edge of town, and as Jesus just surveys this crowd with him, they're not following him for a healing. They're following him because they're hurting. And Jesus wept. Not like a Chuck Norris, you know, little tear, but an all-out weeping. Not just a moment where he kind of gets shaken up, but an internal moving. He was hurt. He was grieving. 
And some people looked at him and they said, see how he loved Lazarus. This isn't just a pastor showing up to comfort a family. This is a friend who loved him. And just a side note, if tears running down his cheeks were evidence of his love, of his love for Lazarus, when blood came down his cheeks, that was even greater evidence of his love for you. But more on that Friday. People looked at Jesus, they said, look how he loved Lazarus. This isn't just a show, he loved him. And other people saw a different story. Other people said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They're expressing their frustration and their disappointment. Where was he for these four long days? So here's something just to think about. When you feel like you're being disappointed by God because you've been asking for something or expecting something and there's, there's absence, there's silence, here's maybe one thing to think about is that while you are going through this suffering, you are not lost to God. He is present with people in their mourning and in their grieving. And Jesus could have explained away their grieving. He said, don't worry, I'll raise him from the dead, or don't worry, someday we'll all be together in heaven. That was not his message, but rather what we see is that Jesus empathizes with even our temporary hardships, the little things from an eternal perspective, the, the things that shouldn't make a difference in eternity, Jesus slows down to empathize with. Isn't that crazy? Now, one thing I do as a dad, I try to you know, zoom out because so often the problems our kids get worked up about, they're way bigger in their head than they are in real life. And so I, one of my roles as a dad is to try to provide perspective for the entire life, not just this one little thing, which let's be honest, we adults still need help with. And Jesus didn't just change their perspective, but he entered their perspective and he was a part of it. He increased the value of their grieving by participating in it. And then what he did next confused everyone. He, he was deeply moved. He was weeping. And then he did this. So Jesus, once more deeply moved, he came to the tomb. And John gives us some background. John was there. He remembers it. He said, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Uh, the best we can Envision is probably at like a 45 degree angle where you kind of get that stone in place and then you drop it down and it seals the tomb. And Jesus, weeping, an emotional wreck, he says, take away the stone. And people were probably like, he's lost it. He probably wants one last chance to try to say goodbye to his old friend. And Martha, as she's standing there, Martha, by the way, she's responsible for this body of her brother, She's the guardian. It's her responsibility to make sure no one desecrates this body and that they don't disrespect this body. She comes up and says, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean, take away the stone? She says this, Lord, by this time, you're not gonna like what you see. And we're not gonna like what we smell because there's a bad odor. He's been in there for four days and it's not gonna be good. I wonder for, for us, has Jesus been asking to change part of your life? And you've been telling him, don't take away that stone. It stinks. 
you're not going to like what you see. Is there a sin that you've been holding on to and you've been confronted, whether it's through God's word or your conscience or a Christian friend, they've confronted you, you've been confronted, but in your heart you're saying, don't, don't go there. Don't take away that stone. I don't want to smell. I don't want others to smell or to see what's really in there. Can I just say you're not alone in that? Even when Mary and Martha were confronted with the miracle worker himself, they hesitated to give Jesus access to the one whom they loved. But you can trust Jesus. Jesus told them, did I not tell you? We've talked about this. We've sat down. We've, we've worked through this. Did, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so, they took away the stone. And something struck me about this that I've never seen before. You know how sometimes you read through a part of like a really familiar Bible story a bunch of times and it's kind of automatic, but there was something that stood out to me that hadn't really clicked before. You see, if, if I was Mary or Martha and I was believing that Jesus could bring my brother back from the dead, I would probably put some conditions on taking the stone away. Like, okay, I will take the stone away once you fix what's inside. Like, go ahead and do your thing and have Lazarus knock four times and then we will open it up once we know, you know, it's good. But here's what I noticed. that They took away the stone before the miracle happened. They took away the stone before the transformation that God, that Jesus alone could bring. And it's gonna be the same thing for me and for you. When there's something in your heart God wants to address, you're gonna to wanna to say, just make me good and then, and then we can open up. But Jesus says, no, take away the stone. Trust me. I will transform you. I will give you life. Will you give me access? Will you let me in? So, number three, trust Jesus, take away the stone. What if it's hard? It will be hard. When you're expecting from him a new life, a resurrection, that will be when it's the hardest to do. When you're expecting a new fruit to come from your heart, a new version of patience, a new version of gentleness, of kindness, that won't happen easily. And by taking away the stone, you'll have to acknowledge the death that is within your very own heart. But Jesus says, take away the stone because I have work to do. You can trust me. And Mary and Martha, they trusted him. Before the miracle happened, they took the stone away. So let's wrap up the story here. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this, I've said this for the benefit of the people because so much more than just getting a miracle, I want them to believe in me for greater things. For the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I want them to believe. I want them to believe and trust me. Not just with bringing dead people from tombs, but for every part of their life. And so, what Jesus did next shocked the crowd. And I don't recommend you try this. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I'm sure the weeping paused for a moment in disbelief that this, this rabbi would try to talk to a dead man. 
And I'm sure Mary and Martha leaned in a little bit, wondering, what is he up to now? And maybe the people who had handkerchiefs over their nose for fear of what they might smell, maybe they lowered them just a moment to see what would happen next. And then here's how it continues. The dead man came out. John wasn't very good with his grammar because dead man can't come out of graves. He was no longer dead, he was alive, yet his hands and feet were still wrapped with strips of linen. A cloth was around his face. He wasn't just hanging out in a tomb for four days waiting for Jesus to do this. He had been a dead man for four days. And here's where we see the previous miracles of Jesus start to add up all together at once, where sometimes a miracle calls for faith from the person to receive it. But in this case, the dead man didn't sit in his tomb and for a moment consider if he should accept this invitation to come back to life, but rather the command to come out was accompanied with the ability to do so. Just like for you. You can't transform what's inside your dead heart. But when Jesus brings forth his fruits, it changes everything. So as this dead man comes out, this mummy-looking person, yet very much alive, you know, I would have called for the first responders, call 911, get the nurses, get everything together, get the doctors, but Jesus said to them, we're good. Take off his grave clothes and let him go. We're good. So as we look at this seventh miracle, it's really a crescendoing echo of all the previous six ones all put together. In the seventh one, we see the greatest demonstration of who Jesus is and what he came to do. In the seventh one, we see that not only for miracles do you need the faith to ask of them, but sometimes God supersedes our faith to give us what only he can do. But it still allows us to ask the question that we started with, what do you do when you're disappointed with God? What do you do when the miracle you've been waiting for hasn't happened? And as we go back to the beginning of the story, there was one thing that stood out. Jesus, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness will not end in death. This sickness is not for death. This sickness is for God's glory. So what I want you to do this week is to replace that word sickness with whatever it is you're struggling with. My debt is not for death. My debt is for God's glory. My struggling with health is not leading to whatever. My struggling with health is for God's glory. My relationship issues are not about me. They are for God's glory. My brokenness is an opportunity for God to come into my brokenness and let his name be gloried. If Jesus had answered their request for Mary and Martha to come to Bethany to see Lazarus, to heal him, people would have marveled at it. But a bigger problem, death, led to a bigger trust. And this was the big setup for what was about to happen just days or weeks later. This miracle ended with Lazarus coming out of a tomb. But Jesus couldn't travel to every grave in the world 
He couldn't do this thousands of times every day and try to heal the world through temporary resurrections because guess what? Lazarus died a second time and now he's in heaven. But rather, to to do this on a wide scale, to do this for the whole world meant something greater would need to happen. In order for death to be conquered, Jesus would have to be the next one to enter the tomb. And he would have to be the next one to walk out of it. As we get ready for Holy Week, as we get ready for Good Friday and, and Easter, maybe you've been wondering, where is God in my life? And why hasn't he been doing what I want? Well, what I know is that we're often disappointed with others when they don't meet our story, when they don't live up to our expectations. But here's the good thing about God is that as long as you have breath, you can show his glory. And even after your final breath, your story will end with his glory. Could you set that as your goal? Where your story isn't about good health, your story is about God's glory. Your story isn't about having everyone love you in your life, your story is about God's glory. Because if it's focused on your glory, about people believing you and people trusting you, that is a short-lived thing. But Jesus, when he entered his tomb and when he walked out from it, he secured for you a different story, one that ends with God's glory. So if you're watching this in real time, even if you're watching this later, I hope you can tune in or join us this Friday and this coming Saturday and Sunday as we remember Jesus' death, but also as we celebrate his victory over it for the world and for you. Let's pray. Savior Jesus, the way that you wept for Lazarus at his tomb was evidence of the great, deep love that you had for him. And the way you let your blood trickle down your face on the cross was evidence of your deep love for this world. It's easy for me and for us to get distracted by the short-term things, to expect the little miracles that help us get through day by day. Help us see in you the answer to our greater issue, the greater problem of what's going on within the darkness of our hearts. You invite us to take away the stone that's been hiding our guilt and our fears, and you enter into it with your grace and your life and your forgiveness. Bless us this week and always as we contemplate the cost you paid for our souls and also as we live in the victory of your resurrection. We pray this all in your name. Amen.